Hello and welcome to Florida Politics Reviewed. I'm your host, Katherine Marin, and this is a podcast out of Florida Political Review, Florida's preeminent student political journal. For more in-depth coverage of Florida politics, visit our website, floridapoliticalreview.com, and follow us on Twitter at FLA Review. I'm Nora O'Neill, and here's your rapid-fire news for the week. From Florida Political Review, be sure to check out our opinion articles, The University of Florida is Partisan, and DeSantis Plays Chess Using Migrants as Pawns. Some things to keep your eye on in Florida politics. Senator Marco Rubio is asking for $33 billion in disaster relief for Florida after Hurricane Ian. The figure breaks down to $12 billion for damages and flood control, $1 billion for pollution, and $10 billion to add to the Federal Emergency Management Agency's relief fund. Republican Senator Ben Sass made big waves at the University of Florida after being named the sole finalist in the university's search for a new president. He held a forum October 10th to meet with faculty and students and was instead greeted with hundreds of student protesters begging him to get his sass out of the swamp. A federal court judge upheld the state's ban on covering gender-affirming care with Medicaid on October 12th. The rule went into effect August 21st and denies any procedures relating to primary or secondary sexual characteristics. Meanwhile, the Florida Board of Medicine is struggling to adopt a standard of care for transgender patients. A new 2022 WalletHub study recently found Florida was second to last in overall voter registration. There's not much time to get that number up, as the voter registration deadline for Florida's midterm election passed October 11th. It also ranks Florida 42nd in the nation for voter turnout in the 2020 election. And as we know, those November 8th midterms are quickly approaching. Stay informed with FPR's coverage. On behalf of FPR, we would like to acknowledge and extend our deepest sympathies to those who are dealing with the impacts of Hurricane Ian. Members of the community who want to help those in need can do so in a variety of ways, including the American Red Cross and the Florida Disaster Fund. People may also donate to Aidigator, which provides funding to students experiencing unanticipated expenses due to emergency situations. With that said, here's Florida Politics Reviewed. Coming to you live from the Hub, I'm Catherine, and today I'm here with Scott Howard, writer of DeSantis Plays Chess Using Migrants as Pawns. Scott, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. All right, so let's get into it. On September 14th, we saw something we'd never really seen before here in Florida, and we've seen a lot in Florida. What can you tell me about the situation at Martha's Vineyard? How did it start? The situation at Martha's Vineyard began when Governor DeSantis had 48 migrants flown from Texas to Martha's Vineyard in an attempt to raise awareness about the border crisis. Um, We recently ran over 2 million migrant encounters this year, which has been unprecedented. And so DeSantis had 48 migrants flown um, as sort of a political ploy as well, because Martha's Vineyard is notoriously democratic. Um, It it caused a national uproar. And did these migrants have any directions, any kind of assistance when they arrived to Martha's Vineyard? No, they were essentially just dropped off in the middle of the street from, from what everybody could tell. There was no, there was, there were suggestions that they had been given pamphlets beforehand that said they would have job opportunities when they got there. Um, there were no job opportunities, though. The, the pamphlets, if they existed, were, were lies, and the migrants were just left in the middle of the town with no direction. All right. And did they actually even know where they were going? No. Um, the, the migrants had 
zero clue where they were being flown to. Um, they were lied to in some cases, um, reportedly. Uh, they were told that they were just going somewhere with jobs and somewhere that their legal claims could be filed better, but that was not the case. Now, there was some pushback against the relocation of these migrants. Can you talk to us about who is challenging the governor's move? Yes. So there are two main legal cases going on that involves this. As far as I'm aware, there may be more. Um, some of the migrants themselves are suing in Massachusetts. The, the claim is that their Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment rights have been violated. So I think a judge has granted standing to that. So we'll see how far that case goes. Also, in Texas itself, in, in the county from which these migrants originated, the county sheriff is, has launched an investigation into whether these migrants were lied to and whether the law was broken in moving them. So he, he hasn't named DeSantis by name, but the implication is that DeSantis will be involved. Now, you mentioned, aside from your obvious argument, that what happened was inhumane regardless of your stance on border control. Um, a relocation program for unauthorized aliens doesn't exactly fit this situation. Why not? So the program in question that that, that quote comes from uh, was authorized by the state legislator this last July. And the program is authorized to move illegal aliens from the state of Florida to this. Um, that phrasing has no application here for two main points. One, these migrants are not here un unauthorized. They are all asylum seekers. They had all Their claims of asylum had all been filed, and they were awaiting trial when the, the move happened. And second, these migrants were not from Florida itself. Um, all 48 of them were from Texas. Right. And you say that the relocation program was a political stunt. What do you think is the strategic reasoning behind the governor's recent actions? Is there some kind of higher office in play? Uh, yes. Um, for those who really follow electoral politics, especially inside the, the Republican Party, it's been no secret for about a year now that Governor DeSantis has his eyes on a run for higher office come 2024, and specifically the presidency. Um, so this this move, as a political stunt, was meant to raise national his his national profile, and to make him look good in the eyes of the Republican base voters that he's going to need to win the primary. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm with Gianna Brock, writer of Florida voter fraud arrests spark calls for reform. Gianna, how are you doing? I'm good. Great to be here. That's good. That's good. All right. So let's just jump right into it. So Gianna, what happened here? All right, so in about mid-August, actually August 18th, uh, there was a coordinated arrest. Uh, it was a combination of the efforts of the uh, Florida Office of Election Crimes and Security and the FDLE, which is our state uh, police, and they had a coordinated investigation in which they found about um, 20 individuals who were on the voting rolls uh, illegally, and they found that they had actually voted illegally in the 2020 election. And so on August 18th, there was actually a coordinated arrest of these in individuals all across the state. Wow. Okay. So what are the potential consequences for those that were arrested? So as of now, they are facing a uh, $5,000 fine and up to five years in prison because it actually is a third degree felony. Wow. Okay. So can you... Tell me about Amendment 4 here, because I believe that has a lot to do with this, doesn't it? With the actual arrest, uh, technically it doesn't. Um, if you talk to people from the state, like I spoke with Mark Ard, who is the Director of External Operations for the Florida Department of State, and the official statement is that it really doesn't. But if you look at it from the perspective of those who have been arrested, it actually does have a lot to do with it, because they were actually under the impression that 
because of Amendment 4, they actually were allowed to vote. And Amendment 4 was something that was passed by the Florida legislature in 2018, and it actually restored the right to vote for felons under specific conditions. And some of those conditions were that if they were a nonviolent um, felony offense that they committed. So they couldn't have been a murderer or a, a rapist. And the other thing, too, is that any fines or fees that they owed had to also have been paid. Now, the unfortunate thing is that un there's not really a set way for some of these uh, convicted felons to know if they actually qualify. So some people were approached by different organizations who were trying to uh, get people to register to vote, and they said, oh, I'm a convicted felon. But they said, no, no, it's okay. Under Amendment 4, you actually can vote. Uh, but they didn't know because, you know, it's, you don't want to go up to someone on the street and say, oh, are you a murderer? Are you a rapist? I mean, that can be a very uncomfortable situation. So they just assumed that the person was a nonviolent um, convicted felon. And so then they did register. They went to the DMV or maybe online, filled out the application. And now here's where the part is where they actually committed a crime. There's actually a box that you have to check that certifies that you are allowed to vote, that you either if you are a convicted felon, your rights have been restored, or that you are not a convicted felon. So they checked a box saying, no, my rights have been restored. Now you're lying on this document. That's where the voter fraud comes in. I see. And does this have to do with the fees? Did they not pay off their fees beforehand? Is that why uh, Amendment 4 did not apply to them? Um, Again, there's because it's 20 individuals, it's kind of a myriad of things. Right. But for the majority of them, it's no, it's that they were actually convicted of, of violent offenses, and that's why they didn't uh, qualify. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Are they able to do anything about this? Is anyone trying to help them get through this? Uh, what's happening here? Yeah, so this was a very traumatic and stressful time for these individuals. These are people who went to prison that, you know, in their, in their mind, paid their respects and now are a member of our, our community. And a lot of it, a lot of the times it was actually a very heavy police uh, presence. It was SWAT. It was very early in the morning. They have children, they have families, and they're being kind of arrested, dragged out of their homes in the early wees of the morning. Their neighbors are seeing. I mean, it was definitely a very traumatic experience for them. Um, luckily, though, there is the FRRC, which is the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. I was actually able to speak with their deputy director, Neil Voltz, and he explained what they're doing to help. Um, from the beginning, they were raising money and they were helping to pay uh, bail for some of these individuals as well as uh, make sure that they're uh, getting proper legal counsel because they are facing uh, uh, crimes and they will have to appear in court. Wow. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on, Gianna. It was good to see you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And now I'm with Maria Varas, writer of Nebraska Senator Ben Sass named finalist for University of Florida president. Maria, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. Great, so who exactly is our new president-to-be? Our new president-to-be, as of now, will most likely be Nebraska Senator Ben Sass. Before uh, becoming a senator in, in the early 2000s, oh, sorry, in the mid-2000s, or yeah, before becoming a senator, he went to Harvard, Yale, he in total holds five different degrees, and what has been widely reported is the fact that he was president of a Nebraska private university called Midland University for five years. And what exactly can you tell us about the context of his departure from Congress? So in regards to his departure, if the UF Board of Trustees accepts SAS, 
then he plans to resign from the U.S. Senate. This is, I guess, pretty notable because he was recently re-elected in 2020, and so his term would have ended in around 2020, in 2027. And so his early resignation, a lot of people are speculating that the, his early resignation is influenced by the fact that he was one out of seven Republican senators to vote to convict Trump after the 2021 uh, January 6 Capitol riots. In fact, his resignation is a growing trend of any congressional of the congressional Republicans who have voted to either impeach or convict Trump. Trump, it's a uh, growing trend of their fate, um, as we as we are seeing in this year's midterms. Um, the House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump have been losing their primaries, very notably uh, Liz Cheney. And so, yeah, uh, very notable because it's an early resignation. And why do you think there's been so much backlash against the choice that was made, but also the process in which it was made? Well, yeah, in terms of the backlash, I mean, this past Monday when Senator Ben Sass arrived to UF campus for a Q&A, Students showed up to protest, specifically over 300 students uh, were present uh, to protest. This protest was organized by various student groups and unions. Uh, So many people arrived that the Q&A had to be ended early and SAS had to be escorted out and he had to complete the Q&A via live stream and private. Um, in terms of specifically, like what students were protesting against, um, since Sass is a senator, his political beliefs um, are very like out in the open, very easy to access, and it has been widely pointed out that Sass's views on marriage, on LGBT issues, he believes that marriage is between a man and woman. He has publicly spoken out against the Supreme Court legalizing same-sex marriage in in Obergefell v. Hodges. In terms of abortion, for example, he is very, he is pro-life. He has mentioned multiple times and discussed multiple times his pro-life beliefs. Um, So those are some like social issues there that a lot of students have concern, um, hold, hold a lot of concern. In terms of the process in which he was selected, that has been uh, very like widely pointed out, widely discussed. Uh, this past legislative session, the Florida Congress voted on a bill, which was passed by DeSantis, which was signed on by DeSantis, that would that would make university presidential searches private, so outside of regular public meet public recording laws and everything. So virtually the whole process of the presidential committee selecting Ben Sass has been done in secret. I mean, there were 700 other candidates that were, there were 699 other candidates considered and like we only know of Sass. And so a lot of students have expressed concern that the whole process was political, partisan, and how they want to see more They they just wanted to see how the whole process played out. Thank you so much, Maria. No problem. 
That's it for the show today. Be sure to stay updated on all things Florida politics by visiting our website, floridapoliticalreview.com. Thanks for listening to Florida Politics Reviewed.